Well, we're so grateful to the Lord for the gift of music. Thankful to the people who serve us each uh, week and especially during the season in using their gifts to give us the sounds of that music. There are some things the Lord has given to us that uh, a pandemic could never take away. Uh, His glory and majesty on display through the incarnation of the Son. And it's our joy to be able to celebrate that during this season. Thank you so much, choir, for giving us that through music. This morning, we want to turn our attention to that through the Word. And to do that, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, which is this remarkable introduction of the glorious birth of our Savior. I'm I'm sure every one of us who have had children have experienced a sense of awe and a sense of excitement at the expectation of what this little life will bring or these lives if we have multiple children. We are filled with hopes and dreams of what they might someday be with a sense of, of uh, expectation to see how the Lord would direct their pathways. Of course, at the beginning, it's, very, uh, it's a little more, I should say, than just a wish. It is really a, a hope in the most feeble sense of the word, because we can't say with certainty what pathway the Lord will take the, the, the little ones down, our children, So we prepare ourselves for a journey, not really knowing the final destination of each one of them. It was much different, though, with the birth of our Savior. His destination and journey were very clearly laid out from the very beginning for His parents. All that needed really to be known about Him was revealed from the beginning, and everything that was important to know about Him was made known to them. What He would accomplish, what He would become, all of it was revealed, whether through the angels who visited them or through the Old Testament Scripture that they were pointed to. The challenge for them was not imagining what it might be, The challenge for them was accepting what it was. It was accepting what the Lord told them. Because He told them exactly what their child was going to be. You might consider that to be a blessing if you were a parent, but for them it was a terrifying thing. Partly because for them to know the destination, for them to know the the, uh, end product, was also to know some of the pain of the pathway ahead of time. The Lord told Mary that this child was destined for the rise and fall of many and even the piercing of her own heart. So in some ways, they had to experience all of the travails of what was to be as well as the hope and the expectation All at once. All at the very beginning. And it was an act of faith. It was a challenge of belief to them. We're on the other side of that. We are those who live after the birth of Christ. In the time of our Lord, as the calendar says. We're those who look back on the events of His birth and His life and His crucifixion and resurrection, but with the same kinds of challenges, not exactly the same, but similar, having to accept everything that the angels foretold, having to accept what uh, they proved to be, and having to accept what the Lord says about them. But it is a challenge of faith, nonetheless, for you, just as it was for them. Maybe more so for them, since it hadn't come to be yet, but it was a challenge. A challenge that was all centered on the reliability of the Lord. When He declared His Son 
the one born with his precious name to be the savior of the world. As I said, this news as it came to his parents wasn't particularly comforting at the beginning. It was startling, it was mystifying, it was terrifying. Something that they weren't even really able to wrap their minds around. Something that was difficult for them to believe because the significance of what they were hearing about this baby was almost beyond belief. And Matthew reveals so much of that to us here at the end of Matthew chapter 1. The struggle in some ways of his parents to accept what was said about this baby because the struggle reflected the significance of what was being said. Matthew tells us the story and highlights some of these points of significance for us, the significance of the birth of Christ that really come down to us as the significance of this celebration of Christmas. Four critical components that Matthew gives to us here for understanding the significance of the birth of Christ in verses 18 through 25. Let me just begin by reading this passage for us. It says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Four critical components, as I said, that are revealed to us here to understand the significance of this birth. And the first one here in verses 18 and 19 is just simply the miracle of his birth. The miracle of this whole event. Matthew gives it to us really after this extensive genealogy in verses 1 through 17 that he uses to open up his book telling us that Jesus was most certainly born as the fulfillment of a promise given to David that God would send a descendant to sit on the throne of David And then Matthew launches directly into the story of this birth. The birth of Jesus took place, he says, in this way, verse 17. And if it really were not for the final phrase to be found there in verse verse 18, if it weren't for the final phrase to be found there, that all of this was from the Holy Spirit, Matthew would be doing nothing more than reporting a small town scandal of a young woman's pregnancy. Because we're given the advantage of, of history, we can understand what's going on here. We're told that this pregnancy was the result of a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. But we can't forget as we enter into the story that almost no one understood that. At this point, when Joseph is hearing all of these things, when All of this is taking place. No one, almost no one understood these realities. It was a very delicate situation with a very average, unassuming Jewish couple. We're told that uh, Joseph, this uh, young Jewish man, was betrothed to a simple girl named Mary In Jewish society, this would have been serious business, betrothal was. It was much more serious than our modern day ideas of engagement. Betrothal was a kind of a legal contract that you went into that had exchange of goods. 
a common agreement between not just two individuals, but between families. It was much more of a commercial venture that involved these serious contractual obligations as it relates particularly not just to the marriage itself, but to a dowry, a bridal price, which ancient cultures and many cultures today still practice the exchange of a bridal price. It wasn't just the promise of a young man to a young lady to marry her. It came with serious capital attached to it to make sure that the promise would stand. It was a contract really between the young man and the father of the expected bride. Rabbinical sources tell us that the bride would typically enter into one of these contracts around the age of 12 or 12 and a half years followed within the next two years, by marriage. Most girls were married by the time they were 14. They would enter into these contracts which were binding by law and could only be broken with a formal decree of divorce. They were as serious almost as marriage. You had to go to court to get a sort of a formal decree from a judge to get out of these things, and it could really only be broken by the same means that marriage was broken, by unfaithfulness. In fact, if a man was betrothed to a woman and the man died before the formal marriage, she would be referred to as his widow. So this was the situation where Joseph and Mary were. They they were unassuming, they were sort of going about their business, they were in the normal course of Jewish life with a betrothal contract. He's already gone to Mary's father, who Luke tells us his name, his name was Heli. He had negotiated this bride price and would give it in exchange for the privilege of taking Mary as his wife. These were hefty sums, hefty sums. Matthew tells us that after all this really had taken place, after they had already entered into this betrothal contract, after Joseph had already given over his dowry, if you will, the the bride price, he had already given this over to Mary's family. He had had, uh, made that sacrifice, if you will. He finds out at this point that his bride-to-be is pregnant. We don't know the details of how Joseph found this out, that she was pregnant. It's possible that word began to spread in the community and that the rumors were swirling and that he heard that way, but I don't really think that's probably the case. What I think happened is that this young 12 or 13 year old girl Mary went to Joseph to have a very difficult conversation. Luke tells us himself how Mary heard and over in Luke chapter 1 verse 26 we're given that story. Luke 1 26 We're told in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The next thing we hear in Luke's account is Mary going to visit her cousin Elizabeth and sharing the news with her about the pregnancy. My suspicion is that before that happened, before she even left town, she tried to tell Joseph. And not surprisingly, he was suspicious. Had to cut her, I'm sure. This man that she loved and that she hoped to marry, now looking on her as if somehow she was deceptive and had broken his trust and had dishonored the Lord. He came to the only conclusion you could possibly come to in your rational mind. If she was pregnant and she had not been intimate with him, she must have been with another man. And so Matthew continues the story in verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He was convinced that she was shameful. He was convinced that what she had done would be looked on with scorn by everyone. I'm sure he was deeply hurt, maybe even angry, But obviously, at the same time, he had a love for this young girl and full of compassion. He didn't want to put her to shame. He was, as Matthew says, a just man. He was just in the sense that he loved righteousness. That righteousness, though, however, didn't leave him with a harsh edge. It also filled him with compassion. And so he didn't want Mary to suffer any more than she would already suffer in his estimation. This is, by the way, why I think Mary is the one who told him, because Matthew suggests that no one at this point knew that there was no public scandal, there was no public shame. Rabbinical sources tell us that the procedure at this point would have been for them to go up to Jerusalem, to the Sanhedrin, And you go through the process of litigation that you could legally uh, follow with your contractual obligations. In this case, it would have meant that Joseph would have been able to reclaim all of the proceeds, all of the financial outlay that he had given in the bride price. He would have been able to recoup some of those costs, hopefully with the idea of being remarried To someone else, he would have needed those funds or those items or whatever it might be. If it was livestock, he would have needed all that to begin to prepare himself for for the next chapter in his life. Joseph knew, however, that to do this would have been to subject Mary to public shame. It would have involved accusations in a public courtroom that would have exposed her, ridiculed her, ruined her. And so he decided to divorce her, we're told, quietly. He could do this in the presence of just two witnesses, according to rabbinical law. He could dissolve the betrothal contract in a quiet ceremony and forfeit all of his monies. It would have been a huge financial sacrifice for Joseph. But at this point, this was his plan. Because he didn't have one very important piece of information. The child in Mary's womb was not the product of some illicit relationship. It wasn't the product of natural generation. 
It was generated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Matthew emphasizes throughout this story is that the pregnancy took place before Mary and Joseph ever came together. In fact, down in verse 25, he'll emphasize again that even even after they were formally married to one another, they still remained abstinent until the birth of Jesus. All this took place before Mary and Joseph consummated their marriage. In other words, it was anything but natural. This was all supernatural. And this has always been the core conviction of Christians. It's always been at the center of the story of Christ. It's always been a part of the early creeds of Christianity. And it's obviously central here to Matthew's telling of the story and to Luke's telling of the story. It's emphasized not just narratively in the Gospels, but it's also emphasized prophetically through Isaiah. It is central that Jesus was born not through natural generation from a man and a woman, but through the supernatural generation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in other words, placed all of the necessary genetic material into Mary in embryonic form, combining it with her own genetic material, her own egg cells, to form this miraculous coming of the Savior in this embryonic form. And so the child to be born from her would have all the full components of humanity and the full components of divinity and most importantly he would be called holy as luke announces this news to mary this is his the way he explains it the holy spirit will come upon you the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of god There's a lot of debate, has always been a lot of debate about why the virgin birth was and is so central to Christianity, but I believe the scripture emphasizes that the purpose is for the sake of Jesus being born holy, which basically means set apart, unique, that's what the word holy means, it means separated. Some have suggested that he was born this way because sinful, the sinful nature of humanity is passed down through the genetic material, the genetic code, if you will, of the male line. This is, in fact, uh, what has been the conclusion of many theologians through the years. Medieval theologians derived even the false doctrine of the Immaculate Conception that Mary had no sinful nature to insulate Jesus from any accusation of having a sinful nature, saying that the genetic code, if it could pass even through the mother, could not have passed to Christ because he was conceived of someone who herself was Sinless. That's what the Immaculate Conception is all about. They never, of course, explain where Mary would have escaped that sinful nature if she had been born by natural genetic means. Mary definitely had a sinful nature. She had her own sins that needed to be forgiven. She needed salvation from the wrath of God like every other human being. She even refers to God as her Savior, the one who would save her from her sins. All that to say that the virgin birth really has nothing to do with whether Jesus could or could not have inherited sinful nature from His mother Mary or His father Joseph. And we believe that through the miracle of the virgin conception, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit preserved this tiny fetus from corruption even through Mary's genetic code. She was herself a product of humanity. She herself was fallen. She herself was corrupted. But the Holy Spirit supernaturally protected Jesus from all of that. 
not by sparing him from male genetic code, but by his supernatural work. The second idea why the virgin birth was necessary was so that Jesus could bypass original sin, the original guilt of Adam. When you and I are born, even before we ever commit our first act of sin, we're born under condemnation because a representative for us sinned before God and in his representative status, he brought condemnation on all humanity. That was Adam. He sinned and he cast all of us under a curse. And so some people believe that, that this representative nature only descends again through the male line. And so somehow this virgin birth was meant to cause Jesus to escape that condemnation. Or another way to say this is that this was all done to preserve Jesus from the guilt of original sin. But again, even Mary herself had been tainted by this same corruption. Even she was born under this guilt as a female. She herself was sufficiently under this curse to have passed it on to any of her descendants. It doesn't necessarily take a virgin birth to spare Jesus from that. It was God who spared him from that by his own declaration. The clear reason that's spelled out in Scripture for the virgin birth is simply so that Jesus would be unmistakably recognized as the Son of God. That's where, those were his words, or those were the words of the angel to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. The holiness is defined by the title, the Son of God. And even when you hear about the prophecy of the virgin birth in the Old Testament, it's coupled with the idea that the child will be named Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, the virgin birth always focuses attention not particularly on his lack of sin, although he had no sin. It always focuses attention on his deity. God wanted to demonstrate through this miracle that Jesus was unmistakably unique in his origin. No one had ever been born like this. No one had ever entered the world like this. He would have proven himself to be sinless a number of different ways. He would have, uh, would have become obvious through his life. But what is really unique about this particular son is that he was born unlike any natural person. He was born by these miraculous means. So in some ways, the virgin birth stands alongside so many of the other miracles of Jesus' life. They demonstrate His unique nature as God in human flesh. That's the miracle of His birth, and that's the first component to understanding His significance. It marries very closely with the second one that Matthew introduces in verse 20, which is the mission in His name. It was not only a supernatural gift in terms of this fetus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, placed in Mary's womb there by the supernatural work of God, but he was also given a supernatural 
name. There was a supernatural gift of a fetus and a supernatural gift of the name. And in that revealed name, there is the nature of his mission. So Matthew tells us in verse 20, right as Joseph is in the middle of of contemplating this, this status of Mary and her pregnancy, the angel speaks to Joseph while he was sleeping, while he was dreaming. Verse 20, he was considering these things while he was considering them. In that, you might say, season of time while he was contemplating what he was going to do about the situation. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from his sins. When the angel comes to him, he addresses him, Joseph, son of David, which is probably not the way that Joseph was addressed on a regular basis. People probably didn't uh, attach that connection to him regularly. But the angel does. He adds this title, Son of David, because he was already alerting Joseph to the significant role that, he, that his son was going to play, or the child, I should say, was going to play in the plan of God. Joseph was a legal descendant of David. And through the adoption of Jesus as his own son, he would have provided Jesus with the legal status as heir to the throne of David. And then the angel proceeds to tell Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure if he gave any more explanation than that. I'm sure Joseph would have had questions But Joseph seemed to comprehend through that short explanation that Mary had not been unfaithful to him. That this was something supernatural. And then in verse 21, the angel says, She'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, he'll save his people from his sins. In case Joseph didn't get the point, the angel accentuates it giving him this divine name. You'll remember, in Luke's gospel, he had already given the name to Mary. I don't know if Mary had shared that with Jesus or if this was the first time he hears it, but obviously it was important. It was important. Mary heard it. Joseph heard it. God miraculously planted the baby and God intentionally gave him this name. Not that the name itself was unique, Historians tell us that the name of Jesus or or Yeshua or Joshua, as you might say in the native native tongue of Hebrew, this was the sixth most popular name in Israel at the time, according to ancient birth records. There were a bunch of people with the name Yeshua. It wasn't that his name was unique to him, it's that his name fit His mission, because His mission was to save people from sin. It's basically what the name Yeshua means. It means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. And the angel wanted Joseph to understand this important mission. He wanted Joseph to reflect on this. Reflect on what the name meant, that Jesus came to provide salvation, and not just any salvation. It wasn't military, it wasn't political, it was salvation from sins. Because people needed to be saved. Because people were standing under condemnation. Because they were entrapped, because they were condemned, because they were under God's wrath. They needed deliverance they needed liberation they needed release and what they needed release from was the wrath of God Israel looked for liberation like so many people look for freedom and look for liberation 
throughout all time, but they thought they needed to be liberated from oppression or maybe liberated from, from poverty or liberated from, I'm sure in some individual cases, from sickness and illness. They thought all the time that they, their answers were tied up in all of those things, but really what they needed to leave, be liberated was from their sins. There was a judgment against them by God according to His law. They were lawbreakers. They were those who stood under the condemnation of the law and they needed to be saved from that. Unfortunately, as Matthew will go on to tell us, this is not a message that Israel wanted to hear. It's not a message that many people want to hear. They don't look at themselves as under the wrath of God. They don't accept the judgment of God. They don't look for a Savior. The tendency of most people is to want to blame their problems on their circumstances or on other people. But for those who come to realize that the misery of their situation is by the own, their own doing and their own sin. For those who accept that, God has sent a Savior. He sent a Savior. And His name is Jesus. To communicate to you that God, the Lord, saves. He saves those who confess their sin. He saves those who cry out to Him for salvation. That brings us to a third critical component for understanding the significance of this birth in verse 22 and 23, which is a message through the prophet. The angel stops speaking And now we hear the words of the narrator, if you will. We hear the words of Matthew as he quotes from the Old Testament, just as he'll do many times throughout his gospel. Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a quote out of Isaiah 7.14. Matthew's telling us that the virgin birth of Jesus had been foretold by this passage. It's particularly a rich passage. We don't have time to look at it in detail back in Isaiah. But it was a passage that was focused on God's message to Israel through some unique children. First of all, Isaiah's own children who were told were given special names. In Isaiah 7, 3, Shear Yashub, one of his children. And chapter 8, verse 3, Maher Shalal Hashbaz was Isaiah's second child. I don't know, you know, I'm sure they shortened that, Maher or something. But God had already named these kids with these special names as really a proclamation of judgment. They told what God was going to do. He was going to bring judgment against Israel. But then eventually, in Isaiah 9, he talks about a child being born and a son being given who would bring about salvation. He speaks about this child and he says his name's going to be called Emmanuel. But if you follow the thread of this, for, uh, this prophecy, I should say, if you follow the thread of it from chapter 9 back through the giving of his name, Emmanuel, in chapter, chapter 8, all the way back to chapter 7, you will find the prophecy of the virgin birth in verse 11. There was a king, uh, uh, not a very good king in Israel at the time. 735 B.C. was the time. He was in a dilemma because he was being threatened by his enemies. Syria 
was joining forces with the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were threatening to invade the southern kingdom of Israel and overtake them and depose the king and enslave the people. And so Ahaz was contemplating what he might do. And instead of turning his heart to the Lord, he looks to other means. He looks, in some cases, to a foreign alliance with another kingdom, Assyria, who would have come in and formed an alliance, but it would have had all kinds of strings attached. It would have come in with all kinds of demands to not only deplete Israel's financial resources, but to take away her independence and to pollute her religion. They would have forced integration with Israel. They would have brought down her standards of righteousness. At the same time, they were consulting mediums and they were consulting necromancers and they were consulting all kinds of mystics. All of this was taking place as Ahaz was figuring out what he should do. He was looking for answers. And so God sends him a prophet named Isaiah to give him assurances that God is able to protect the nation if he would just trust in the Lord. And he comes in verse 11 and he says to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So in other words, you're not supposed to ask for just some little thing. I don't want you to ask for some sort of vague signal, God says. I want you to ask big. I want you to ask for something obvious, something unmistakable, dramatic, as deep as Sheol, that is hell, or as high as heaven. Ahaz refuses to do this. He doesn't want to be trapped. He doesn't want to be obligated. He doesn't want to have to admit to whatever the prophet follows up with. He knows that it's going to come with things that he himself has already resisted. He knows it's going to come with a a call of faithfulness to the Lord. He doesn't want to rely on the Lord because he doesn't want to answer to the Lord. And so he refuses to ask for a sign. And so God says to his stubborn heart, I'll give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call His name Emmanuel. Now, for years, people have debated exactly what this verse means. Who is this virgin and who is this child? Many people have pointed out that the Hebrew word for virgin, Alma, Alma, really could refer to any young woman doesn't necessarily have to be a virgin. It's just simply saying that a young woman will conceive and bear a child. And so therefore, this is not really a prophecy of the virgin birth, but that really doesn't make sense because God had told him, ask for a special sign. And a young woman getting pregnant who's not a virgin is not particularly special. So in order for it to be a special sign, it has to be a special situation. And the only special situation would be if someone who's never been intimate conceived of a son. And maybe more insightful than that is that when the Jews themselves came to translate their Hebrew Bible into Greek in the Septuagint in 250 B.C., they themselves chose a Greek word, Parthenos, which explicitly means virgin. So they themselves understood their own language. And they understood it to be a prophecy of the virgin birth. This is what's going to happen, Isaiah says. A virgin is going to conceive and he'll give birth to a son and you'll call his name Emmanuel. Before that ever happens, Isaiah says, you're going to fall into judgment. But this is really looking beyond the judgment. In fact, he shifts, Isaiah shifts here from singular pronouns, you, Ahaz, to plural pronouns, you, the house of David. And he tells him that this one who's coming is going to be the Savior of Israel. 
Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Before Matthew ever wrote, before Jesus was ever born. This child is going to come during a season of darkness. During a season of wondering, during a season of despair for Israel. But Isaiah 9 begins to look beyond that. It says, There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He will... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now with names like that, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. It's obvious this is the same child who would be called Emmanuel. God with us. And so Matthew just simply says this is all taking place because this is exactly what God said would take place. That a virgin would conceive and she would bear a child and the child would be recognized as none other than the holy Divine God dwelling in human flesh with us. Joseph hears all that. He understands all that. He accepts all that. With all of the implications that come along with it, it would have been difficult for him he would now have to walk in the shame along with Mary. He would now have to put all of his public reputation on the line. He would now have to bear the scorn of being associated with God's plan for this precious baby. But he does it. Which brings us to the fourth point here in the significance of his birth you see the meekness of his parents in their response the meekness of his parents Matthew says when Joseph woke from the sleep he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him he took his wife the uh, impression is that Joseph's obedience was immediate and again in verse 25 Matthew emphasizes that they remained abstinent until the birth of Christ, he leaves no doubt that this child was the miraculous work of God. We don't know how long it remained a secret. Mary was already pregnant. We know that Joseph took her as his wife immediately. No doubt it provided her with some shelter from scrutiny as her body began to reveal the signs of pregnancy. And we know, of course, that God would orchestrate a worldwide census that would require them to leave town and to travel down to Bethlehem for the timing of the actual birth. So probably it would be hard for local people, if you will, to calculate the dates of her pregnancy. But eventually the truth would slip out and even Jesus' own enemies would use it against him. They would question his origins. Whether or not he's even a legitimate child. But Joseph and Mary were unflinching. They were unflinching in their acceptance of this truth. They were unflinching in their loyalty to God because they could not deny the significance of this child. And they accepted it, no matter what it meant. They accepted it with all of the slings and arrows that would come with it. They accepted it. 
because this was the most momentous thing. Not only that it ever happened in their life, this was the most momentous thing that had ever happened in the history of the world. God came to dwell with man. And He came to do it in order to provide a sacrifice for the salvation of all those who would trust in Him. Really, the whole story of Jesus is right here contained in these verses. The whole gospel is right here. That we needed a Savior. That God gave the gift of His Son to be that Savior. That those who believe that message must be prepared for whatever ridicule and rejection the world might give. But for those who do, there's salvation from our sins. It's a precious thing that we celebrate this time of year. We celebrate it with our music. We celebrate it with the study of God's Word and all of our worship. We celebrate it because it is the most momentous thing, the most significant thing that we could ever celebrate. It deserves all of our attention. It deserves all of our admiration and awe. It's a Savior who deserves all of our adoration and worship. It's a plan that deserves all of our praise from a God who deserves our whole life. I hope that this is a time for you as you come together as family and friends this week to not be overtaken by the trappings of the commercialization of the season. I hope that it's a time for you to come together not to be overwhelmed by even the gloom of this world, but really a time to refocus again on the magnificent gift that's been given to us in the Son. Well, let's stand together as we're dismissed by a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're so grateful for this reminder this morning, so thankful for the precious gift of our Savior. What a joy it is for us to reflect on this holy, holy gift again. We're thankful for the unmistakable way in which He came, pointing to His unmistakable nature. May our adoration, our loyalty, our submission to Him be as unmistakable as we worship the Son this season. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.